Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, April 23rd, 2018, is an Anne and Andrew Tisch Supreme Court lecture. Legal scholar and Harvard Law professor Randall Kennedy discusses the Supreme Court case, Walker v. City of Birmingham. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much for the generous introduction. I um, always uh, enjoy being here for a variety of reasons, but but one has to do with the uh, the audience. It's a great audience. I always get uh, good questions both during the session, and I also get uh, questions and, and feedback uh, subsequently. Uh, in the audience, there are folks who often know a, a good deal about my subject, and um, I've, I've gotten so many helpful, uh, helpful tips, and I'm sure that will be the case uh, this evening. Last time I spoke here, there were people in the audience, lawyers from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who had been my chaperones when I worked at the Legal Defense Fund after my first year of law school, it was so wonderful seeing them. A couple days after I, I spoke, I got a, an email from a, uh, a person, uh, Evelyn Rich. It, during the comments, I was asked about a, a protag- really the protagonist of the drama that I was investigating in the last lecture, and I I had to admit that I really didn't know that much about what had happened to this person after the the case. This person's name was Mary Hamilton, and a couple days later, I get uh, an email from someone who knew Mary Hamilton and and sent me very useful information about her. Um, So, again, I'm I'm, I'm delighted uh, to be here. I look forward to questions, comments, objections. So, let's begin. In the spring of 1963, civil rights activists focused as much pressure as they could muster against racial practices in Birmingham, Alabama. They confronted a formidable challenge. White supremacism demanded an enforced preference for whites over blacks in virtually every social domain. A rigid racial bar subordinated blacks to whites at workplaces. Eating establishments were racially segregated, as were drinking fountains, dressing rooms, bathrooms, elevators, taxis, ambulances, and hotels. It was a crime for blacks and whites to play cards, checkers, or dice with one another. The most influential politicians in the state and city were devoted to pigmentocracy. When Alabama's governor, George Corley Wallace, was inaugurated in January 1963, he vowed to fight for segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Similarly fervent was Eugene Bull Connor, the long-serving commissioner of public safety in Birmingham. Disdaining due process rights that got in the way of repressing adversaries, Connor once ordered the arrest of three visiting Negro ministers simply because they had the temerity to meet with the city's leading civil rights crusader, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. We don't give a damn about the law, Connor confessed when questioned about the legality of the arrests. Down here we make our own law. Connor was also known for rhetoric shot through with malapropisms. We're not going to have white folks and Negroes segregating together in this man's town. (laughs) Activists accelerated their efforts to challenge the Jim Crow regime, targeting businesses that discriminated against blacks as employees and customers. African Americans, for example, were no longer willing to shop for merchandise while being excluded from eating facilities reserved for whites. 
to protest activists organized boycotts, marches, and sit-ins. City officials responded initially by simply arresting protesters. Then, on the evening of Wednesday, April 10, 1963, officials deployed a different weapon. They applied for a temporary injunction to restrain two organizations, the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and 139 individuals, including Shuttlesworth, Wyatt T. Walker, and the movement's leading figure, Martin Luther King Jr. The application alleged that those named had sponsored or encouraged unlawful sit-ins, kneel-ins, and picketing. The city's lawyers charged that these actions were calculated to provoke breaches of the peace, threaten the safety, peace, and tranquility, and place an undue burden and strain upon the manpower of the police department. They asserted that inasmuch as these and similar actions were expected to continue and would lead to further imminent danger to the lives, safety, peace, tranquility, and general welfare of the people of the city of Birmingham, equitable relief was necessary immediately. In an ex-party proceeding, Circuit Judge William A. Jenkins, Jr. responded favorably. He enjoined King and company from participating in or encouraging mass processions or like demonstrations without a permit as required by a city ordinance. In the pre-dawn hours of Thursday, April 11, King and several colleagues were served with the injunction. They were not surprised. In 1961, in Albany, Georgia, just as a protest was gaining traction, a federal district court ordered King to cease demonstrating. Some partners in King's coalition, mainly those associated with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, urged him to disobey the injunction. They feared that waiting to have it dissolved upon appeal to a higher court would deflate the protest. Others implored King to proceed with demonstrating only after the order had been lifted by a higher judicial authority. Among those who urged King to follow the latter course was the United States Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. King did wait, and his lawyers eventually succeeded in having the injunction dissolved. But the attendant delay was one of the ingredients that doomed the protest in Albany, a setback that constituted one of the worst defeats in King's career. Facing the injunction in Birmingham, King was again beset by conflicting advice. His father and other associates recommended obeying the injunction. Others urged disobedience, notwithstanding the likelihood of being held in contempt of court. With the bitter memory of Albany in mind, the knowledge that more militant activists were questioning his toughness, and keenly aware of the deep religious symbolism involved in defying authority at Easter time, King resolved to protest despite the injunction. His lawyers apprised him of the risk of doing so. They explained again that defying an injunction was different than defying a statute. Upon being prosecuted for disobeying the latter, one was allowed to challenge the constitutionality of the law in question. Upon prevailing, one was free because the statute was deemed to be a nullity to which no obedience was owed. With injunctions, however, the rules were different. Upon disobeying a standing injunction, one was, with certain exceptions, precluded from challenging the, the injunction's legality as a defense to a contempt citation. In other words, if the target of an injunction declined to seek its declined to seek its modification or dissolution and instead defied it, the target lost his right to contest the injunction's legality in subsequent proceedings, even if the injunction was unconstitutional. This is known as the collateral bar rule. The collateral bar rule is largely an application of race judicata, the idea that once a party has had an opportunity to litigate a matter, he ought not be permitted to relitigate the issue in a collateral proceeding. 
precluding litigation in circumstances in which a party has already had an opportunity to make his case, is justified as a means of promoting efficiency, finality, and fairness. Like any rule, however, the collateral bar rule can be turned into a destructive weapon. By issuing a bad faith, by issuing in bad faith a speech-restrictive injunction in circumstances in which a target has insufficient time to seek review of the order, a judge can pin a target into an excruciating position. Facing the injunction, the target may, on the one hand, desist from engaging in his protest until he can obtain a judicial resolution of his challenge to the injunction, a choice that might cost him irreparably in terms of momentum, prestige, or the other intangibles that sometimes make all the difference to a political struggle. On the other hand, the target may disobey the injunction before it is subjected to review, a choice that might allow him to engage in the prohibited conduct, but at the cost of inviting punishment for contempt of court, even if the injunction is indeed unlawful. Aware of this dilemma, King acted decisively. If we obey this injunction, he remarked, we are out of business. Preferring the likelihood of jail to the likelihood of another thwarted protest, King and his associates donned clothing that could withstand the rigors of incarceration, prepared to march, and explained publicly why they were prepared to disobey the court order. They said that in the past they had abided by federal injunctions out of respect for the forthright and consistent leadership that the federal judiciary has given in establishing the principle of integration as the law of the land. They contended, however, that in this case, they confronted recalcitrant forces in the Deep South that will use the courts to perpetuate the unjust and illegal system of racial separation. They maintained that the injunction was raw tyranny under the guise of maintaining law and order and an unjust, undemocratic, and unconstitutional misuse of the judicial process. Stating their position without equivocation, King and company averred that just as in all good conscience we cannot obey unjust laws, neither can we respect the unjust use of the courts. Undaunted by their legal jeopardy, they asserted that they risked taking this critical move with an awareness of the possible consequences involved. The next day, Good Friday, April 12, 1963, King and Company, numbering around 50, started out from the 16th Street Baptist Church while a crowd of about 1,000 to 1,500 people looked on. After proceeding a few blocks, the marchers were arrested and, and jailed for violating the city's parade ordinance. A reporter for the New York Times described the march as the most spectacular up to that point in the campaign against segregation in Birmingham. On Easter Sunday, more demonstrations and arrests transpired, albeit without King, who, detained for the next several days, pinned his iconic defense of civil disobedience, letter from Birmingham City Jail. On Monday, April 15, city authorities sought from Judge Jenkins citations for criminal contempt of court against those who knowingly disobeyed the injunction. Protesters replied by challenging the constitutionality of the injunction and the municipal ordinance on which it was based. Judge Jenkins refused, however, to consider their argument. He noted that they had failed either to comply with the injunction or to seek to have it dissolved prior to disobeying it. Invoking the collateral bar rule, he maintained that by disregarding the injunction, the respondents had forfeited their right to test its legitimacy. The only issues he was willing to consider was whether he had jurisdiction to issue the injunction and whether the protesters before him knowingly disobeyed it. He ruled against them, handing down punishments of five-day jail terms and $50 fines. 
the Supreme Court of Alabama affirmed the convictions. A closely divided United States Supreme Court affirmed the decision of the Alabama court. The four dissenters were Earl Warren, William O. Douglas, William Brennan, and Abe Fortas. The five in the majority were Hugo Black, John Marshall Harlan, Byron White, Tom Clark, and Potter Stewart. Writing for the majority, Justice Stewart stressed two points. First, the petitioners did nothing to contest the lawfulness of the injunction before violating it. Second, the collateral bar rule was firmly established in Alabama law. In one previous case, for example, the Alabama courts had refused to entertain constitutional challenges brought by a white supremacy organization after it had disobeyed an injunction. King and the other petitioners were thus clearly on notice that they could not bypass orderly judicial review of the injunction before disobeying it. In conclusion, the court lauded the Alabama judiciary, declaring that the rule of law that Alabama followed in this case reflects a belief that in the fair administration of justice, no man can be judge in his own case. The Supreme Court's resolution of Walker remains good law and has garnered considerable praise. Supporting the judgment, the New York Times editorialized that the doctrine the court upheld was absolutely basic to a democratic society. In the pages of the Supreme Court Review 50 years ago, Professor Sheldon Taft Taft, maintained that the decision seems eminently sound and averred that with respect to Justice Stewart's opinion, there is little to fault. Professor Teft, however, was wrong. The decision was unsound, and there is much fault to be found in the opinion. It evinced a regrettable amnesia regarding both the troublesome history of the collateral bar rule and the racial facts of life obtaining in Birmingham in 1963. In the first half of the 20th century, business interests and cooperative federal and especially state judges repeatedly used the collateral bar rule as a bludgeon against organized labor. In an all-too-frequent scenario, a business would obtain an injunction forbidding a strike just before a planned work stoppage. If union leaders obeyed the injunction, the momentum of the workers' campaign would be disrupted. Even if the union leaders succeeded in having the injunction dissolved, the attendant delay would often doom the union's efforts. On the other hand, if union leadership disobeyed an injunction, they would be fined or even jailed and lose the right to challenge subsequently the legality of the injunction. In his dissent, Chief Justice Warren makes much of the long and odious history of the ex-party temporary injunction. As a weapon against strikes, it proved so effective, he wrote, that Congress was forced to take the drastic step of removing from federal district courts the jurisdiction to issue injunctions for labor disputes. Such injunctions, Chief Justice Warren lamented, so long discredited as weapons against concerted labor activities, have now in Walker been given new life by the court as weapons against the exercise of First Amendment freedoms. Justice Stewart's opinion says nothing about the collateral bar rule's role in the long and odious record to which Chief Justice Warren alluded. Justice Stewart's Walker opinion also leaves readers insufficiently aware that the defiance of the injunction arose from one of the bitterest of all the battles of the Second Reconstruction. Justice Stewart acknowledges that Commissioner Connor rudely rebuffed a request for a permit prior to the issuance of the injunction, reportedly saying, no, you will not get a permit in Birmingham, Alabama to pick it. I will picket you over to the city jail. 
Otherwise, however, there is nothing in the court's opinion that tells a reader about Connor's egregious conduct and reputation as a conspicuously cruel and lawless segregationist. Chief Justice Warren's dissent usefully informs or reminds readers that Connor was a self-proclaimed white supremacist, that he made no secret of his personal attitude toward the right of Negroes and the decisions of the Supreme Court, that he vowed that racial segregation would never come to Birmingham, and that he wore a button inscribed never to advertise that vow. These facts constitute more than interesting background material. They are pertinent to a proper handling of the legal issues in dispute. The court misportrays the Birmingham authorities as having proceeded in good faith, while the protesters, in disobeying the injunction, succumb to an impetuous disrespect for the judicial process. Chief Justice Warren makes clear, by contrast, that there was no doubt that the protesters were not going to be issued a permit under any circumstances. In his depiction, Birmingham's officialdom had forfeited any reasonable expectation that they should be given any benefit of the doubt regarding racial matters. It was naive, if not foolish, Chief Justice Warren suggests, for the court to indulge in speculation that these civil rights protesters might have obtained a permit from this city had they made enough repeated applications. Directly impugning motives, including those of Judge Jenkins, the Chief Justice charged harshly but rightly that there was only one apparent reason why the city sought this injunction and why the circuit court issued it, to make it possible to punish petitioners for contempt rather than for violating the ordinance, and thus to immunize the unconstitutional statute and its unconstitutional application from any attack. According to Justice Stewart, this case would arise in quite a different constitutional posture if the, if the petitioners, before disobeying the injunction, had challenged it in the Alabama courts and had been met with delay or frustration of their constitutional claims. But there is no showing that such would have been the fate of a timely motion to modify or dissolve the injunction. The petitioners, he, he complains, give absolutely no explanation of why they made no effort to modify or dissolve the injunction before demonstrating on Good Friday. In seizing upon the absence of any effort to modify or dissolve the injunction before disobeying it, Justice Stewart highlighted a real weakness in the petitioner's case. They were well aware of the collateral bar rule and the dilemma that it thrust upon them. Recollections vary, however, regarding their response. Wyatt T. Walker, one of King's principal deputies and the lead defendant, recalls rejecting the prospect of challenging the injunction in court. One option we eliminated, he said, was going to court to try to get the injunction dissolved. We knew this would tie us up in court at least 10 days or two weeks, and even then we might not get it dissolved. We would have had a lengthy lawsuit to appeal, but no Birmingham campaign. Norman Amaker, one of King's attorneys, recalls, on the other hand, that he and local counsel might have decided to file some kind of action if there had been enough time to prepare it and if the movement leaders had approved. But everything was happening so quickly that the lawyers simply didn't consider that a practical possibility. It is understandable why King was so attentive to the threat of delay. Good Friday and Easter come along only once a year. He surely wanted to avoid depriving his followers of the emotional uplift that would, have, that would come from witnessing protests on those specific holy days. And the alchemy of dissent that enables long-oppressed people to throw off habits of subordination may present itself only once in a lifetime. 
King was simply unwilling to allow in Birmingham a replication of the deflation that defeated him in Albany. Waiting, moreover, had become intolerable for him and other activists who chafed at being told to accommodate themselves to the slow requisition of rights to which they had long been entitled. For years now, he declared in letter from Birmingham jail, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. Still, it seems to me that it would have been prudent for King's lawyers on the ground to have uh, contested the, uh, the injunction. They might have been held in contempt anyway had they sought review of the injunction, but marched before a definitive judicial resolution of the dispute. But filing something before marching would have strengthened the protesters' legal position. It would at least have obviated the charge that King and associates wholly disregarded the injunction before violating it. Still, the mistake on the part of King's camp does not justify Walker. Justice Stewart's own opinion hints at what would have been a better outcome. Walker, he insisted, was not a case where the injunction was transparently invalid or had only a frivolous pretense to validity, implying that the presence of those features would have led to a different conclusion. But there was good reason to believe that the order was transparently invalid. It was issued ex parte without justification. The targets of the injunction were well-known and clearly available. No valid interest would have been compromised by granting the protesters notice and a hearing before possibly prohibiting them from marching and engaging in other acts of dissent. There was also strong evidence that invidious racial discrimination infected the process by which city authorities denied issuing a permit to the protesters. Furthermore, the city ordinance regulating demonstrations was obviously vague and overbroad. Constitutional vices that were transmitted to the injunction when Judge Jenkins used the ordinance as the model for his injunction. Although illegitimacy was written all over the injunction, the court saw it differently. Conditioning the right of the petitioners to challenge the injunction collaterally on a thin distinction between mere invalidity and transparent invalidity, the court ruled that the injunction was not transparently invalid. The court acknowledged that because of its evident flaws, the injunction would would unquestionably be subject to substantial constitutional question. But the court maintained that the injunction was not so flawed as to be transparently invalid because it at least touched upon a governmental interest in regulating streets and other public places. In previous times, in previous cases, the court had bestowed upon civil rights protesters a conspicuous solicitude. Here, however, the court's line drawing went against them, though a strong, indeed compelling argument militated in favor of the proposition that the injunction in question was transparently, blatantly, conspicuously invalid. Why? A variety of unspoken but powerful sentiments played major, perhaps decisive, roles. One was a cooling toward the black liberation movement. In prior cases, when more of the justices were more sympathetically disposed toward the movement, The court read the facts of disputes in a fashion that consistently and sometimes dramatically aided protesters. By the time it adjudicated Walker, however, the court was no longer disposed to being so generous. 
The court states, for example, that there was an interim of two days before the issuance of the injunction and the Good Friday March. Actually, the protest leaders received copies of the injunction at 1 o'clock a.m. on Thursday, April 11th, one day before the Good Friday demonstration. The court complains repeatedly that the protesters omitted pursuing the established procedures for obtaining a permit. Twice, though, representatives of the protesters had attempted to secure a permit. The court discounts the significance of these efforts because they were undertaken before the injunction was handed down. More empathy might have led the court to credit the protesters' argument that they had reasonably believed it to be futile to try any further to obtain a permit. The reservoir of goodwill nourishing previous interventions by the court on behalf of civil rights protesters had appreciably receded. The change was not wholesale. The court in Walker, remember, was extremely close. The vote in Walker, remember, was extremely close. Remember, it was five to four. But because of the closeness of the vote, small changes in the attitude of a justice or two mattered greatly. Apprehension about the movement had been growing for a while. Judicial angst is best seen in the writings of Justice Black, the dominant figure in the wing of the court that prevailed in Walker. In 1964, in Bell v. Maryland, Justice Black, joined by Justices Harlan and White, dissented from the court's vacation of trespass convictions imposed upon Negro students who had engaged in a sit-in. Justice Black remarked that the Constitution does not confer upon any group the right to substitute rule by force for rule by law. Force leads to violence, violence to mob conflicts, and these to rule by the strongest groups with control of the most deadly weapons. At times, the rule of law seems too slow to some for the settlement of their grievances, but it is the plan our nation has chosen to preserve to preserve both liberty and equality for all. On that plan, we have put our trust and staked our future. In 1965, in Cox versus Louisiana, Justice Black, joined by Justices Clark, Harlan, and White, descended from the reversal of a demonstrator's conviction for violating a statute that prohibited anyone from picketing or parading near premises occupied by judges, jurors, and other court officers with the intent of influencing them. Justice Black averred that those who encourage minority groups to believe that the United States Constitution and federal laws give them the right to patrol and picket in the streets whenever they choose in order to advance what they think to be a just and noble end do no service to those minority groups, their cause, or the country. In 1966, in Brown v. Louisiana, Justice Black, joined by Justices Clark, Harlan and Stewart, descended from the court's reversal of convictions for breach of the the peace at a public library that allegedly engaged in racial discrimination. It is an unhappy circumstance, he declared, that the group which more than any other has needed a government of equal laws and equal justice is now encouraged to believe that the best way for it to advance its cause is by taking the law into its own hands. Despite the opposition of Black, Clark, Harlan, and Stewart, the court in the first half of the 60s had typically, albeit not invariably, ruled in favor of dissidents in the civil rights protest cases it decided to review. By the time Walker was adjudicated, however, much had changed. The Supreme Court had extended the reach of Brown versus Board of Education to domain after domain. The same day that Walker was announced, the court handed down Loving versus Virginia, invalidating the oldest form of government-mandated racial segregation, the laws prohibiting marriage across the race line. Congress and presidents had also been active, enacting the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. By 1967, civil rights fatigue had set in acutely. 
Emergent, too, in some quarters was a feeling that the mission of deploying law against racism had proceeded about as far as it could prudently be pushed. At the same time, alarming disorder, provocative tactics, and extravagant rhetoric alienated many onlookers who feared that seeds of lawlessness were now blossoming under the ministrations of fearsome militants who made a point of abjuring any continued commitment to nonviolence. In 1965, rioting erupted in the Watts section of Los Angeles. In 1966, Stokely Carmichael electrified the black liberation movement with the slogan, Black Power. During this same period, protests against the Vietnam War escalated, elevating fears of mayhem to new levels of intensity. The city of Birmingham's attorneys sought to focus the court's attention onto the prevalence of disorder, joining a chorus that including leading advocates such as Lewis F. Powell Jr., president of the American Bar Association in 1964-65, who would join the court later, of course. In a widely noted law review article, A Lawyer Looks at Civil Disobedience, Powell denounced King's distinction between laws warranting obedience and compelling and laws that allowed for disobedience. According to Powell, the disobedience movement of segregationists and anti-segregationists, as well as the anti-war movement and the new left, had been tolerated excessively. Justice Stewart's opinion offers no direct comment on the discord that had engulfed much of the country. It is almost certain, however, that anxiety over unrest affected the court's judgment. Supportive evidence is found in Justice William Brennan's dissent, where he declared plaintively, we cannot permit fears of riots and civil disobedience generated by slogans like black power to divert our attention from what is here at stake. Notwithstanding Justice Brennan's plea, fears of riots and black power did, alas, influence the court, facilitating the issuance of a regrettable decision. Chastising the petitioners, Justice Stewart declared in the most off-sighted passage from Walker that no man can be judge in his own case however exalted his station, however righteous his motives, and irrespective of his race, color, politics, or religion. This court cannot hold that the petitioners were constitutionally free to ignore all of the procedures of the law and carry their battle to the streets. One may sympathize with the petitioners' impatient commitment to their cause, but respect for judicial process is a small price to pay for the civilizing hand of law, which alone can give abiding meaning to constitutional freedom. This peroration, though celebrated, does not fare well under close scrutiny. A call for humility, it evinces a judicial conceit that is misleading. The petitioners were not seeking to judge their own case, and did not claim to be free to ignore lawful procedures. They simply argued that, under the trying circumstances they confronted, encountering bad faith on the part of local officials, constitutional, federal constitutional law, rightly understood, entitled them to act in disregard of the injunction and to challenge it later in defense to charges of criminal contempt of court. Walker versus City of Birmingham should prompt sober reflection. That people were compelled to resort to political protests to challenge widespread and blatant racial discrimination in mid-20th century America was disgraceful. That they were arrested and jailed by local authorities intent upon suppressing their message is outrageous. That this persecution was then blessed by the United States Supreme Court was tragic. 
with a bit of absurdity thrown in for good measure. Of all the places to proclaim the civilizing hand of law, the Supreme Court chose a case in which it absolved judicial white supremacists and relegated to jail, of all people, Martin Luther King, Jr. Thank you. Before I turn to the questions, is Deborah Greenberg in the audience? Ah, I can't. Like I said, it's always, I, I love coming to this audience. Um, Debbie Greenberg is a very distinguished social activist, civil rights lawyer in her own right. She's also the widow of Jack Greenberg, longtime leader of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And Jack Greenberg was also the person who argued this case in the Supreme Court of the United States. Debbie, thank you very much for coming. What are the lessons of Walker for today's political environment? There are many. Um, one is that... Um, it's a real mistake to think that the law is uh, hermetically sealed from politics. That uh, you know the law that the law is on a completely different plane than politics. It's a mistake to think that um, the judges um, don't read the newspapers that judges don't go to, you know, cocktail parties and dinners and talk with folks, that judges are immune from the political, moral, cultural currents that surround all of us. Um, just like the Supreme Court in Walker was affected by political currents in its own time, our courts will be affected by political currents in our time. That's one lesson. It's a sobering one. It's one that we all need to be attentive to in our roles as citizens. How and how often are injunctions used by state courts today? They're used quite, they're, they're used. And I, I, I mentioned that Walker versus City of Birmingham is still, when I said, I, I said in my talk, good law, what that means is it's, it's the leading precedent. The theory that the court announced then is the theory under which we work today. And periodically, periodically, uh, this issue that Martin Luther King Jr. and company confronted, periodically it's confronted now. I mean, so for instance, I mean, some of you all saw the movie The Post, right? You know, or the Pentagon Papers, and the New York Times, the Washington, the New York Times, the New York Times was hit with an injunction. And it had to face the question, do we, do we um, play ball and not publish and seek to get the injunction dissolved, or do we disobey? And the New York Times chose the, the former. And courts, uh, um, uh, newspaper, newspapers, sometimes it's uh, television stations, uh, confront this now. Imagine a situation that most recently... There have been, any, there've been a, a number of cases. Let's suppose there's a criminal, there's a trial, highly publicized criminal trial going on in, your, in a city. And a newspaper 
gets its hands on some evidence pertinent to the case. One of the lawyers, maybe the defense lawyer, hears about this, goes to the judge and says, Judge, I want you to enjoin the newspaper from publishing this evidence because if the evidence is published, it will deprive my client of a fair trial. What does the newspaper do? So this is still very much part and parcel of our legal uh, environment. Could King and the protesters have asked for a permit and announced the intention to march four weeks before Good Friday? They did try to get a permit. They did try to get a permit. Bull Connor wasn't, wasn't having any of that. I mean, that's one of the things which makes me, frankly, so angry with the Supreme Court with respect to this decision. This was not a case of uh, local officials acting in good faith. They did try to get a permit. They were denied uh, a permit. By the way, the law that the law that um, governed demonstrations in the city of Birmingham, the law that sort of designed the permitting system, was obviously unconstitutional. In fact, in fact, in another case that was argued by Jack Greenberg two years after this one was argued, he did persuade, Jack Greenberg did persuade the Supreme Court of the United States to invalidate the very city ordinance that had been the basis for the injunction in Walker. So, I mean, that, the, the injunction was clearly unconstitutional. Um, but the court wanted to make a point of saying to King and all onlookers, listen, if the courts issue a court order, you have to play ball. Now, that's sort of an interesting thing. I mean, one might ask, why is it that the court is so intent upon handling courts differently than other sources of authority? If a legislature passes a statute that you think is unconstitutional, you can ignore it. And then you'll be arrested, and when you're prosecuted, you can defend yourself by saying this statute is unconstitutional. And if the statute is unconstitutional, you're free. If a police officer issues a directive and you think it's unconstitutional, you are free to ignore it. Now, you do put yourself in considerable jeopardy because... Either way, you're taking a risk. I mean, if the courts, if you've, if, if you've miscalculated and the courts rule against you, you'll go to jail. But the question is, why is it that the courts really do, why the judicial exceptionalism? Now, one reason is because well, you've had a chance. You, you, the idea is you have your chance when, the, when, you receive, when you're on the receiving end of the injunction. You have your chance to fight it right then. But again, in this case, just suppose you don't have time to fight it. Why not, under these circumstances, allow a party a First Amendment exception to the collateral bar rule. That, by the way, was the position taken by the Solicitor General of the United States. The Solicitor General of the United States wrote a brief on behalf of Martin Luther King Jr., Wyatt T. Walker, and the others, saying that in the circumstances of this case, and in other cases where there is a First Amendment issue, and when, the, when a party does not have sufficient time to attack an injunction and still go on with their First Amendment activity, they, the Solicitor General's office argued in favor of creating an exception. By the way, the Solicitor General of the United States 
at that time was none other than Thurgood Marshall. But the court abjured that advice. It seems to me that that would have been a better way of uh, handling uh, the issue. But again, my hypothesis is that the court was really seeking uh, to send a message. And one of the messages it was sending was it had become rather fed up with uh, what they viewed to be the um, sort of, you know, impetuousness of the black liberation movement. Ah, if Dr. King understood jail was the consequence, how much of the letter from a Birmingham jail was was pre-planned. Your thoughts on the impact of the letter versus the impact of the march? Well, it's life is complicated, isn't it? So he goes to jail, and I'm sad about that. On the other hand, in the days that Martin Luther King Jr. is in jail, he writes one of the great polemics. You can't have an anthology of writings about civil disobedience without having Letter from a Birmingham Jail. I mean, you simply can't. So it's a great, it's a, it's a great letter. It's a great polemic. Has it had an impact? Sure, it's had an impact. Not only has it had an impact in this country, it has had an impact around the world. And um, sometimes, sometimes what look to be defeats can be turned into victories. And there's a certain way in which this was one of those times. The First Amendment, under its current interpretation, protects hate speech, such as the demonstrations in Charlottesville last summer. Are there any limitations to how far these demonstrations could go? When does free speech become incitement? Well, there's, you know, there's been a lot of writing about this, and um, you know, there's, there's case law about this. So as a general matter, if people are saying things perfectly, you know, they're, they're, they're saying abhorrent things, terrible things, disgusting things. Generally speaking, under, you know, under our First Amendment jurisprudence, governments are not authorized to uh, prevent that. That's protected speech. Now the question then becomes, well, okay, when is it not protected? Well, if somebody's saying something very hurtful, terrible, but general, you know, you hate it, but there's nothing as a, you know, again, these governments are not authorized to do anything about it. If the person, if somebody or group comes up to me, Kennedy, we're going to kill you because of your race. Ah, that's different. Now we have a threat. Now we have a type of assault. Now the criminal law can be mobilized against a person. It's directed against an individual. That's that's not protected. As for incitement, it's one thing to... um, be saying something. It's another thing to be saying something, to be calling for an action and to call for an action in circumstances in which there is a strong likelihood that that action will actually take place. Now we're talking about incitement. 
But one of the very striking features about American law, and here the United States is really you know, quite the outlier. The United States is an outlier with respect to the extent to which it protects uh, so-called hate speech, racist speech. Um, it, it's, it's very unusual in that regard. And, you know, we have to make up our minds. Um, I think we should be aware of developments in other countries. Um, but just because other countries go a different way doesn't mean that the way we have chosen to go is wrong. And indeed, one of the things that I think is quite valuable about our legal system is the extraordinary degree to which it protects speech, the expression of speech, even speech which I find abhorrent. Were there other civil rights activists with different cases in front of the Supreme Court? Oh, yes. In the period between, I mean, the Supreme Court, um, it's a very interesting thing, the Supreme Court. I mean, on the one hand, you've heard me. I mean, I'm, I'm very critical of the Supreme Court's handling of this case. It's also true, however, that between approximately 1960 and 1965, the Supreme Court, under the leadership of Earl Warren and, to a lesser degree, William Brennan and William O. Douglas, uh, Fortas was good as well. The Supreme Court, in the first half of the 1960s, really did in case after case after case, really did provide a quite remarkable degree of protection to uh, civil rights activists. In the early 1960s, when we think about the Second Reconstruction, when we think about the civil rights movement, people you know, immediately think about race relations law, as they should. I mean, you know, between 19... Between during this period, there was a dramatic change in the, you know, the, the law of race relations in the United States. The uprooting of de jure segregation, the attack on so-called private racial discrimination, see, for instance, the Civil, Civil Rights Act of 1964, the attack on racial disfranchisement, see, for instance, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Those were very important. But during this same period, the court uh, generated a considerable body of uh, case law that uh, was really expanded civil liberties quite strikingly. So the southern states, the southern segregationists tried to crush the NAACP. The Supreme Court responded by creating a doctrine of organizational privacy. Southern states tried to get rid of the lawyers for the NAACP. The Supreme Court of the United States responded by creating a doctrine indicating that under certain circumstances, litigation is itself a form of First Amendment, uh, is a form of political activity that warrants Judicial, uh, judicial and constitutional uh, protection. Um, the, um, if you take a look at the law regulating demonstrations, much of that law, the civil libertarian law, the speech protective law, stems from just this period. So yes, there were many activists pushing against racial oppression and their actions were good along a variety of dimensions, good insofar as making American race relations law more equitable, and good also 
in making the law, our law of uh, civil liberties, uh, more generous, more widespread, more speech protective. I think that I'm about to get the hook. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.